Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. On a trip to, to Nashville this week, and I said, I have to come back Wednesday night because I have to be here Thursday morning. I wanted to, to be here to introduce and to just to be with you as we hear from my good friend this morning, Christine Baird. I was privileged to lead a table with her a few years ago, and I learned um, in just a very deeply personal, experiential way how the Lord has blessed her with wisdom, with great uh, faith, with confidence in him. And so I'm just thrilled that she was willing to say yes to come and speak to us today. So Christine, come on up, and I'm going to pray for you. She's going to introduce herself a little bit more as she speaks to us today. God, we thank you so much for what you have revealed to us in this great book of prophecy this week. Just the wrestling that Habakkuk did with you, God, gives us confidence that it's okay to bring to you hard questions. The confidence that he had in in your judgment and in your mercy and in the hope that you provide just uh, spoke to our hearts. So we thank you, God, for what you've revealed. I thank you that you have revealed... um, yourself to Christine as she's prepared, and we ask you, Lord, to speak to us through her. Give us the ears to hear from you today. Give us the hearts to understand what you might be saying to each one of us in an individual way and in us as a collective group. And we just pray, God, that you would help her um, to feel your presence and to, to be confident in you. We, we just thank you and praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi. Okay, can you hear me? I'm told that I'm pretty quiet, so I have to speak up, (laughs) so I'm probably making things tricky on Emily to get the sound right. Um, So I know know some of you, but not all of you, Um, and I thought I would share a little bit about myself. Um, This is my family. Um, My husband, Drew, is in the center. We've been married for about 19 years, and this photo was taken when he was promoted to colonel last week. Um, he's a family physician in the Army, and God used that job in addition to Hurricane Katrina, that's a whole other story, um, to introduce us to Central Texas over 18 years ago. We actually have lived here since 2009, so we've had a very atypical military experience. Um, In my past life, before kids, I was also a family physician, if you can believe that. Um, But then what I had really wanted since childhood um, to be a stay-at-home mom was realized when we had our oldest, Zachary, um, right after we moved to Texas. So he is 14. We are in the middle of the teenage middle school years. Um, So it's a little challenging, but it's sweet, too. And then we have Hannah, who's in green, off to the right. She's 11. She's in sixth grade. She's creative. She knows what she likes. She is strong-willed. But she is tender-hearted as well. Um, And so is Zachary, especially when it comes to our littlest, who is Adeline. She is our caboose, our sweet little surprise, who's three years old. And she was born right before the pandemic began. Um, And as you can imagine, she has all of us wrapped around her finger. Um, My older two attend Providence, um, where I also work, and Adeline is at home with me for the time being. Um, She'll probably be starting pre-K next year, which, like, I'm sort of excited about, but mostly just 
heartbroken over. So, um, so some things to know about me. I actually have a good amount of stage fright, um, like heart-pounding, sweat-inducing stage fright. Um, I think for the longest time, I believe that anyone speaking on stage must have it all together. I mean, why else would you do that? Um, I'm here to tell you that I definitely don't. Um, but I imagine some of my sweet fellow co-teachers uh, would probably readily admit to the same. Um, I'm also very much a crier. I planned on having a box of tissues up here, but I think I accidentally didn't tell anybody about that, so I had to grab some. <laughs> um, those who've been at tables um, or in small groups or in Sunday school um, know this about me and know that I should probably keep these tissues at the ready, so it'll be a miracle if I don't break down and cry during this talk. So fair warning. Um, so maybe these ultra-emotional tendencies um, that I have are what resonated with me about Habakkuk. Um, and I want to start off qualifying this talk by saying, first off, that our friend, Nancy, um, does an amazing job summarizing the large points of this book. And second, you may have already heard a lot of what I've said before. So what I hope to do is first to tell my story in relation to Habakkuk, and second to get you thinking about how your story might relate, and third to see in a different way what God may be telling us about who he is and what his plan is through this book and through our stories. Um, so up to this point, we've studied prophets whose reactions to hearing the word of the Lord are, they kind of run the gamut. Um, there's been a spectrum. We've seen everything from anger. Um, we've seen sometimes seemingly question, unquestioning obedience. Um, sometimes we've just seen facts. Sometimes we've seen worship. Um, additionally, in those very books, we've seen pictures of Jesus as the compassionate reconciler in Jonah, um, the pursuing bridegroom in Hosea, the shepherd king in Micah, and the divine king, suffering servant, and coming conqueror in Isaiah. And those are amazing attributes and important to remember as we move forward in our study of the prophets. But if I'm being honest, how much of what I have learned about God do I actually, in my core, believe? Like, would stake my life on type of belief. Habakkuk is wonderful and validating when, in that God gives us an example of a follower of God who questions him honestly and vulnerably when life does not go the way that he thinks it should have gone. He doesn't get the answers he wants from God, um, and yet he somehow gets to a place of authentic faith and worship in God and trusting him. So how does he get from wrestling with disappointment in God to humbly and sincerely placing his trust and his praise in him? As one commentator puts it, this prophecy deals with the problems created by faith and with the divine answers to the questions which express those problems. So if you'll just pray again briefly with me, I'd appreciate it. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts and break down our defenses and give us understanding as we study your word. Get me out of the way, and may your message and your heart for us come through. We love you and truly desire to know you and your ways more. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So the prophet, who is Habakkuk? Not much is known about Habakkuk, but the little we can see is pretty eye-opening. His name comes from the Hebrew verb um, embrace or ardent embrace, and this seems fitting if we think about Habakkuk embracing, clinging to, wrestling with God. And as one author puts it, Habakkuk comes to this firm faith through this grappling, through this wrestling with tough questions. He's officially, officially recognized as the prophet, um, and as another commentator states, this title is rare in book headings. Um, we see it in Haggai and Zechariah, but you actually don't see that title throughout most of the, the books that we're studying. Um, and so this is taken by some to indicate that Habakkuk was a professional prophet, one who earned his living serving as a prophet at the temple or court, unlike Amos, who was the cupbearer. So in other words, he's someone who, if you heard him speak today, you would think he was a mature follower of God who probably didn't really struggle in his relationship or with any questions or doubts. So hopefully it can be an encouragement to you, um, as you've already seen through your personal study and through your discussion in your small groups, that um, no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, um, struggle and questions are normal and probably will be this side of heaven. So lastly, it's not known exactly in terms of years when Habakkuk lived and preached, um, but as Nancy mentions, this is after the northern kingdom had been taken into exile by Assyria. Um, and it's likely, um, I saw this written by one commentator, that he lived during the reign of Josiah, who was actually one of the godly kings, um, and during whose reign the nation of Judah experienced revival. However, it was during the reign of Josiah's son Jehoiakim that Babylon rose into power, and at the end of Jehoiakim's reign that Babylon would take the southern kingdom into exile, thus fulfilling the prophecy that Habakkuk gives in this book. So Habakkuk had a problem. He had lived through a period of national revival followed by a period of spiritual decline. And that would eventually lead to exile. So that certainly helped give me a framework for some of the frustration that he ends up voicing in this book. So the back and forth are what I like to describe as this is not what you would expect from your typical prophet. Um, one of the things I love um, about this book was that in contrast to the other prophetic books where the Lord begins speaking and his pro prophets respond to his words, the very first thing this book opens with is Habakkuk questioning God. Um, Habakkuk sees the wrongs the Israelites in Judah are committing, and he wants God to do something about it. I know you've read this, um, again, individually or as a group, but just um, bear with me as I read through it again. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He appears to be essentially asking in the first chapter, first verses of this chapter, why aren't you doing anything about the sin of your people? Am I the only one that sees that things have gone horribly wrong? So is this the way that you question God? If I'm honest, I don't always let myself get real with him in my prayers. Maybe I feel like it isn't right, like it's something that I shouldn't 
be doing. Um, I might not be showing enough reverence or respect for the Lord. Maybe I feel like it won't really make a difference. God is sovereign. He's going to work things out according to his plan. His plan doesn't feel very good, but I need to be dutiful about submitting and not questioning. Or maybe it just hurts too much to bring up my questions. But Habakkuk, this professional, spiritually mature prophet, as we just learned, shows us that we don't have to pretend and that it's okay to ask very real and heartfelt questions of God. And then we see God's first response at the end of chapter 1, which in and of itself, it's sweet, sweet to me to see that God replies when he doesn't owe a response to anyone for what he chooses to do. Yet he engages, and I would say he pursues Habakkuk in giving him an answer. It's just not the answer Habakkuk wanted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. It's from verses 5 and 6 of Habakkuk 1. So God's response essentially to me seems to be, yes, I do see, and you have no idea what's coming. My people do need correction, and I'm going to use the Chaldeans to bring it about. So after this shocker, Habakkuk's second question, I don't think anyone would exactly say it. It's a, reply, a polite question or response. Um, here's what he asks, and I want you to take a few moments to read the following verses quietly to yourself, imagining that you were Habakkuk having just heard God's completely unexpected response. So what tone did you use to read this to yourself? Was it humble and meek, accepting, trying to understand? It's possible it could be read in any of those ways. But is there a chance, like me, you read into it a hint of sarcasm and more than a bit of outrage? Maybe think of God's response in light of what is happening in Israel right now with the Jewish people horrifically targeted and murdered and how Habakkuk would have felt and replied, knowing this level of atrocity committed by bitter enemies would happen to his people. So, this is how I read it. What? Why? How could you? Aren't you the everlasting one? Habakkuk seems to respond like I would respond and have responded, with real frustration and sadness and maybe even anger and certainly disappointment. He seems to think that he knows how God would act or really how he should act. Can any of you relate? I know I can. So as I read these verses, I would kind of summarize Habakkuk's feelings with the question, how could you, God? Have you ever dared to ask that question of the Lord? Maybe you've had some of these questions run in your head at some point in the past. How could you let him lose his job? How could you let her die so young and leave a family behind? How could you let him walk away from you? How could you let her suffer with such debilitating surgery complications? How could you allow this separation, this broken marriage? How could you let her choose that lifestyle? 
How could you let them believe these lies about you? How could you let them have a baby when they didn't even want one? How could you give me a baby when I didn't even want one? How could you let her live with this anxiety, with such severe depression? How could you let such unfathomable horrors happen to your people? So, what are or have been some of your how could you God questions? If you can relate to having a really hard time understanding why God is doing things the way he is doing things, how back it gets you. You see, it's really easy for me to give lip service to the sovereignty and omniscience of God, to say that I know he works out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, to say that I trust that he knows best. But how deeply my heart truly believes all of those lessons has been revealed over and over again in times of trial. Perhaps the most telling time was the year my father became terribly sick. So these are my parents in the center, with me and my younger brother, Mark. I don't think I realized how much of a mini-me my youngest was until I pulled up these pictures last week. Um, I grew up in a Christian home, and I'm truly grateful for that. My parents both love the Lord, and I do believe they tried to follow him the best they knew how. I still remember my mom spending hours on her knees in prayer and listening to old-timey worship songs and Alexander Scorby's King James Version reading of the Bible. Anybody know that? Okay. I still remember the quiet, unassuming diligence and steadfast love of my dad rooted in his love for the Lord. But as with all of us, I'm sure, there were errors in their theology and understanding of the Lord and his word. The problem was that we didn't belong to a church or to a community that could gently correct or offer accountability or even just open-ended discussion. And so the things that were slightly off when I was young in terms of beliefs and understanding of the Lord um, really snowballed into something honestly heretical as I grew older. We eventually got to a point where we believed God's ultimate, ultimate purpose in saving people besides us being able to go to heaven was to give Christians a doorway to a better life, one of health and financial blessing if you just have a strong enough faith. We believed that there were certain promises that you could hold God to, or as one author put it, write your ticket with God. Whether that meant success, prosperity, or a long, healthy life. So 20 years ago, I probably would have read Habakkuk 2.4 and said, see, the righteous shall live by his faith. You just need to have a strong enough faith, and God will give you everything he promises you. Does anything of that sound familiar in today's day and age? Thankfully, early in our marriage, the Lord graciously corrected those beliefs. That's another super long story, and it was incredibly painful, but the Lord was so kind and good not to allow me and Drew to keep believing those lies. But my parents continued to put this pressure on themselves to just believe for God's best, and it would come to them. That all came to a head when around Thanksgiving of 2014, I received a phone call from my mom about my dad. He had been having problems with his appetite for months, which was barely acknowledged by my parents. He had lost a severe amount of weight, was extremely jaundiced, and unable to get any food down and had been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. 
So you might think that my first how could you question would have come then. But no, I was actually more in chapter one of Habakkuk thinking, okay, this diagnosis is, is essentially a death sentence. I know that as a physician, just I know that this is, there's not really much hope. Um, God, you see how my parents have been believing lies about you all along. The lie that if they believe hard enough and have a strong enough faith, they will receive healing. You're going to fix that understanding, right? Because there's no getting around what's coming. Kind of like how Habakkuk could recognize the wrongs the nation of Judah were committing in chapter 1, I thought I could see my parents' wrongs and errors too. Even more than that, I had an expectation of how this illness must be part of God's plan. He was going to use this diagnosis and this incredibly difficult and painful journey to open their eyes to his sovereignty, and they would finally acknowledge that there was really no way they could make healing happen for my dad. In my mind, I was thinking, it'll be hard for them, but at least they'll know the truth. Oh, and by the way, I'd be proven right. Well-meaning in some ways, but looking back, also pretty arrogant. How self-righteous and prideful was I to think that I could dictate to God what he should do in this situation. And his response to me was, in a way, similar to Habakkuk. I do have a plan. It's just not the one that you want or even expect. What ended up happening was that my parents hid my dad's decline from me over the following year because, miraculously, he went on to live for another year even after um, that diagnosis. Um, They believed a spiritual healing had already occurred, um, and so they would lie to me whenever they would speak to me because they believed that if they confessed anything to the contrary, a physical healing would never be manifested. So yeah, I find that word that is kind of floating around these days kind of triggering. They also believed to the very end they just needed to summon enough faith and believe hard enough and he would get better. And they were so convinced of this that my mom asked me, I was, I was with them kind of um, what in what would have been his last days. She asked me to leave a day or two before he passed because I was likely keeping this healing from happening since I would not believe in faith with them. So, needless to say, that's when my real how-could-you response happened. God, how could you let them go on believing these heresies about your character and continue to put this pressure on themselves to just believe hard enough? How could you let them believe outright lies and then choose those lies over their own daughter? How in the world is being sent away from my daddy in his final moments okay? So, maybe you can see why I read Habakkuk's second complaint to God the way that I do. I see his anger and frustration and just disappointment. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, you who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? How could you, God? Needless to say, I was pretty broken after this experience and I just... Didn't know how to interact with the Lord because of the pain and, honestly, the distrust that I felt. I imagine this is normal, um, and I would venture to say that the Lord would not have wanted me to be dishonest about how I was really doing. But I will also say that without the Lord's intervention, I would have just sat in my pain and allowed my bitterness to impact everything around me, including my walk with him. So, what is Habakkuk's response? 
Um, we see it in Habakkuk 2, verse 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. We see that Habakkuk has just given vent to his frustration. Maybe he's been upset for a while. We really don't know how long. But he doesn't stay there. He vows to wait and look for the Lord. Perhaps he's at a point where he really just feels lost and unanchored. He just honestly can't do much. So he just chooses to simply wait. And that waiting is a really important part of this process because he's not waiting aimlessly. He is waiting with expectancy. He's heard God answer him before, and he anticipates hearing from him again. Amazingly, he's also humble. Even in his pain, he is aware that perhaps his perspective is probably off somewhere and that he needs God to correct his viewpoint. This response is in contrast to mine and more aligned with that of Christ. And this is where I personally saw Jesus most clearly in this book. Um, in response to trials, I tend to not only sit in my questioning, I question with a lot of cynicism and often with an attitude of God might not be for me. Jesus questioned too, but with a heart intent on submission and subsequent obedience. Um, I imperfectly fumble in my faith and in my trust of God, and I often demonstrate this in my disobedience, but Jesus had perfect trust and faith in his Father and demonstrated this through his obedience. I also presume that I know what the best outcome is in a situation, and I want God to mete out justice to those who wrong me. Jesus did not presume to know best, even though he had every right to do so, being God himself. But in humility, chose to lay down both his authority and his life for those who wronged him. So, I'm cynical, I lack trust, I presume, but Jesus doesn't. And I think that by faith, the Lord allows Habakkuk to begin to respond in small ways like Jesus did. So, Christ's humility, particularly in light of that last part of Habakkuk 2.1, serves as a reminder to us that our vision, our perspective, is limited and that we don't have the big picture that God has. For Habakkuk, it seems to be the first indication that he is choosing to place his faith in the Lord, who knows better. His humility stands in opposition to those described in the first half of Habakkuk 2.4, um, where he the proud are spoken about. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just or righteous shall live by his faith. We see this contrast of the proud versus the righteous or the justified or the humble who live by outright faith and dependence on God. So in comparison to Christ and Habakkuk, how often do I respond in pride? When I sit in my sadness and my disappointment, like when my dad died, do I hold fast to my pride, to what I think should or should not have happened? Do I cling to God and to his presence in my circumstances, or do I cling to my insistence that I know how God should fix or should have fixed what happened? So what is God asking of us here? I think part of what it means to live by faith is to surrender 
to let go of our pride and our control and our expectations and instead to wait on the Lord and to watch for what he will do. We see later in this chapter how God will make right the wrongs and hurts and evils done by the Chaldeans, ultimately in Christ. Um, And for you and for me, he knows the wrongs and the hurts and the evils done to us, and he will make those right too. But like Habakkuk, we have to wait and trust that he sees and that he knows and that he will act in his own timing and in line with his perfect plan for us. I don't have to tell you that that's hard. We sincerely believe that we know what is best for us and can't understand why he's not answering our prayers in the way that we think he should. That's why this quote by Tim Keller really struck me. God gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Please hear this. I'm not saying he causes evil to happen to us or gives us evil. He's wholly good and righteous and cannot tolerate sin. But I do believe as hard as it is to wrap our minds around it, everything that happens to us is what he allows. So the comforting thing is that none of it takes him by surprise or falls out of his plan. And he does not leave us alone, but is with us as we go through our trials. So we were talking about letting go of our expectations and desires. How can we begin to surrender to God? I think where we can start is by reminding ourselves and honestly preaching to ourselves about the truth of who God is and what he has done. And this is what Habakkuk does in chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. I'm not going to read all of this, but um, just to summarize, I think we see in those verses that Habakkuk reminds himself of these attributes of God, his holiness, his justice, his sovereignty, his righteous anger, his heart to save his people. Then we see briefly in Habakkuk 3.16 that he reiterates his intention of waiting. This is quiet waiting, but it doesn't mean that it's passive waiting. We've just seen him come to a better understanding of who God is and what he's about to do. His language even indicates fear. I'm talking about trembling and you know, bones, I can't even remember a whole verse, but um, it just likely means that he has a lot of awe and reverence and respect for the Lord. And from that place of reverence, he can rest while he waits for his righteous and holy and just God to act. And lastly, in Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19, after all this questioning and entering into conversation with the Lord, expecting him to respond, giving retorts to those responses, and eventually reminding himself of exactly who his God is. Habakkuk gets to a place where he can genuinely say the verses found in chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. A back situation hasn't changed. Indeed, the situation is going to get worse. But what has changed is his understanding of who God is and who God will be to him in the midst of loss, lack, and death. What cements the lessons we learn in theory about God are trials and hard or honestly horrible circumstances. The circumstances that none of us desire 
are the very thing the Lord often uses to help us to realize how desperately we need him and to transform our head knowledge into a heart understanding and surrender that impacts the way that we trust and depend on him in the ups and downs of life and leads us to worship throughout. So if you find yourself with all of these ideas about God kind of swirling in your head and wondering why all of this knowledge seems so disconnected from your experiences, your troubles, your struggles, I would encourage you to please question him. Get real with him. Rage and cry and express your disappointment and just be honest with him. Please don't disengage or walk away or think that he doesn't care. Then wait on him. Again, don't disengage or walk away after you vent, but just wait, expecting him to be with you and to answer you, even if it's not the answer you would prefer. Then as soon as you're able, remind yourself of who he is and what he has done in your life or in others' lives. I'm not promising that this is some three-step process to feel better, to be content, to find a solution, to escape from your problem. Honestly, for my own story, it's not been tied up with a neat little bow. There are moments when I still struggle with the how could you and often just have to be honest about where I am and, again, have to wait on him. I do rejoice in him, especially um, just in the changes that I know that he's starting in my heart. But there are times when I struggle, um, especially when circumstances get hard or get disappointing again. But I think that might be the point. If following a formula was all we needed to make our situations better and to make our walks with God smoother, we would be depending on a blueprint rather than on him and on his word. So I simply want to encourage you to show yourself grace and to know that even if you can do nothing but wait right now, that's okay. In the waiting can come surrender and acknowledgement that we are not in control, nor can we manipulate our circumstances. And that's a good thing. This waiting is not without purpose or meaning, and God can and will use it in his sovereign plan. In that waiting, he will make himself known to you, and he will be faithful to transform and to sanctify you. Where you just don't know about him, you know him as being active and present in your life. Where your how could you, God, is transformed to I trust you. Where even if you see things getting harder and not going as you would have planned, you can get to a place of actually rejoicing and worshiping the Lord, knowing that he is and will be your strength and support during the hardest of times. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your heart toward us, and your ever-constant presence with us. Please help us not to run away from you, but instead run toward you with our questions and our doubts. Thank you for your patience with us as we struggle. And please help us when all else fails to wait on you in our desperation and disappointment and trust in your goodness, your justice, and your care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I so appreciate her honesty and um, just transparency, vulnerability with us. I hope that that encourages your heart.